Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Police departments across the United States are increasingly utilising predictive machine learning algorithms in order to forecast where crimes are likely to occur. In a report published in August 2016, Upturn found that 20% of the 50 largest police departments in the United States, including the LAPD and the NYPD, have used predictive technologies, and 36% are actively exploring options to do so. The majority of these systems forecast places where crimes are likely to occur, but the Chicago Police Department has also used an algorithm to establish a heat list term the strategic subjects list of people likely to be perpetrators and victims of violent crime. The use of these predictive models seemingly clothed in the neutrality of mathematics has grave human rights implications. In 2009, the National Institute of Justice made millions available in grants for police departments to buy predictive programs which has stifled public debate as police departments have not had to request the city councils for funding and approval and have chosen not to hold any public debate on whether they should obtain the predictive models and how they should use them. Thus, there is very little transparency as to how police are using the predictive models and the algorithms themselves are black box proprietary systems. This may not only violate the Sixth Amendment right of an accused to cross-examine the prosecutorial evidence against them, but may lead to less accountability at a time when the police is increasingly viewed in some communities as an occupying rather than a protective force. What we do know of the seemingly neutral data that is being fed into these systems is also concerning, for the predictive models are being fed police data. Or data of the crimes, and in, in particular, some biased subset of the crimes, and how does that play out as, um, how does that play out in the machine learning algorithm and in the predictions generated by, by the model that the algorithm learns? And what types of data are currently being fed into the prominent predictive police algorithms? This is a little bit of a difficult question because um, there's not a ton of transparency around this. Um, in general, it seems like, for the most part, what's getting fed through are police, so police records. So that would include usually things like um, crimes that are reported to the police, as well as crimes that police find themselves. So anything that the police record in their own records. These are often called police reports, but reports, I think, is a little bit misleading because it sounds like it's only including the things that are um, reported to the police. I am aware of some other, um, you know, there are various tools. Some use, I believe, mostly calls for service instead of everything, including the things that police find as well. But in general, it's going to be police records. That's usually how this how this plays out. It's usually going to be, you know, the records that the police have themselves in their, in their own system. And, and I would just add, I, I think, you know, for the most part, um, there are place-based predictive policing models that focus on identifying particular neighborhoods or locations that where they expect a certain type of crime to be more prevalent at a given time or day. And then there are person-based predictive policing algorithms. And usually with person-based policing algorithms, they use, you know, previous arrests or, you know, other, you know, like interactions with the criminal justice system as a basis of uh, for prediction. So, and so in, you know, both cases they're using criminal justice, but like, for example, place-based may less likely use arrest and may use things like 911 calls or CFS data and, you know, individual level predictive models might focus more on arrest data. Yeah, that's a great distinction. Thanks, William. So how did seemingly neutral data inputs, such as, for instance, time, place, and type of crime, perpetuate systemic and institutional prejudices, discrimination, and inequities? 
Yeah, so th- this is a big question, right? Um, and and I, I'd like to go back to sort of an example that's a little bit divorced from the actual demographics you're talking about, but we can get that back to that in a second. So I think just sort of as a thought exercise, and this is going to be an extreme example, right, because it's a thought exercise. But suppose you have two neighborhoods. We're just going to call them A and B for now, and they have the exact same level of criminality going on, the same number of crimes, same types of crimes, et cetera. So again, a thought exercise. Um, you have to just assume we have these two things that are exactly the same. But, but suppose that in neighborhood A, the, the people report the crimes a lot, and the police patrol that area a lot, and so basically all of those crimes get reported. But in neighborhood B, um, those people don't report the crimes and the police don't, don't patrol there very often. If you take that data, this, this data would, so even if you only collect something like the time at which crimes are reported in B and the time and the types of crimes that are reported in B and all those sorts of things that you, as you said, do seem very neutral, um, you know, you take those and plug them through a machine learning algorithm, what is going to happen is that the predictions will all say that you go back to A, right? That was the one where they were reporting. So they'll tell you that, that, that neighborhood A has all the crime, that neighborhood A is the very dangerous and, you know, crime-ridden neighborhood. But what's going on here is that it's not, it's not necessarily, it's, in fact, in this case, it's not at all that A is more dangerous or more crime-ridden. It's that the data set contains more records from A for other reasons, right? So I gave two reasons. One, maybe the residents report crime at a higher rate. They trust police more. I don't know. Um, or another reason could be that in A, the police are patrolling there all the time. So if we take this a little bit farther, so that's, again, just a thought exercise. Um, but that's essentially how this sort of thing plays out. So if you have a situation where there is, are these sorts of institutional biases or prejudices or discriminations or inequities where one neighborhood is saying being monitored all the time um, and the police are recording a lot more crime in that location and looking for more crime in that location, or maybe even just sort of we're talking about implicit bias sort of things. Maybe the, maybe the police officers, without even knowing, just, you know, think people that look like the people who live in neighborhood A, um, they just seem a little bit more suspicious or a little bit more dangerous and check out what's going on there a little bit more the exact same thing would happen. So now you're in a situation where, um, you know, again, the people who are of type A or of demographic bin A um, look a lot more dangerous to the algorithm simply because the police have um, focused attention on them in the past or in the reverse because people have reported those neighborhoods or reported those types of crimes more in the past than other types of crimes. I think that's true. You know, I was thinking there was a great uh, piece that was done, an investigative piece looking at uh, policing in Skid Row in Los Angeles. And they, it was focusing on one neighborhood and it was two different shifts uh, within the same precinct. And just even the variation in how police, individual police officers patrol a neighborhood, even uh, their assigned patrol has a big difference on what, you know, what information in terms of the interaction between the police and the community that's codified into data versus what's not. And, for example, one shift during the day, it was an officer who had grown up nearby, and he was familiar with the individuals that lived in this, in this area. And, and just for people who are not familiar, Skid Row is a very large, uh, you know, kind of uh, homeless, uh, you know, homeless camp where you have a lot of individuals who are living in there who are kind of had uh, inconsistencies in their, in their housing. And because he was familiar with the neighborhood and familiar with the persons in the neighborhood, right, he, even if he saw something that technically was something that would require 
you know, like documenting, like, you know, public intoxication or something like that, right? That he, he didn't, he didn't pursue that, uh, pursue enforcement of those particular laws because his role was there to kind of to keep the peace. And, and then in the night shift, there was another officer who kind of his philosophy about policing was that the key to ensure safety in the neighborhood was aggressive enforcement. So when he saw small violations, he would detain, and in some cases, arrest individuals for smaller crimes, right? And, you know, under the, under the philosophy that if he were to do this, this would lead to a safer community. But in a data set, you don't see those distinctions. You just see, you know, at, you know, on February 5th, right, you know, at 10 p.m., that someone was arrested for public intoxication, right? So from that perspective, even just variation within officers on assigned patrols can lead to different data points in an overall data set. And that leads to different perceptions of what neighborhoods are considered, you know, quote-unquote dangerous or not, or that have a lot of crime or not. Some crimes, you know, obviously like homicides, there's not a lot of gray area enforcement, right? If, you know, you see... You know, you see a, you know, someone who's, you know, who, who has been killed, right? That is a data point, And usually that's, you know, pretty well reported, right? You don't have a, a lot of these cases that are missing, right? So, but even, but in some of the other categories, you do see this as like, you know, that there is discretion in how, how officers, how departments, right? How large institutions, right, decide to codify and quantify certain, certain interactions with the community. I'm understanding from your explanation that however good the algorithm is, it's the data that's central to allowing the machine to learn. So if the data is biased, then the algorithm is just going to be really a mirror and an amplification of what goes in. So if the data is from police activity, it's just putting a mirror up to police activity and telling them, yes, you're correct in your assumptions. Keep going. Yeah, no, no, that's exactly right. And that's what I was trying to get at with the first question. It's really just learning the patterns in the data that you give it. So if the data that you give it reflects biases, um, then the model is going to learn those patterns. So the biases are the patterns, right? So the model learns those patterns. The, the machine learning algorithm is learning from the data that you give it. And so that's exactly right. If you're giving it biased data, if you're giving it data where there's these inequities, it's going to learn those patterns. It's not going to learn some other pattern. You know, it's learning from that data set exactly. Right. Garbage in, garbage out. I would say, yeah. Bias in, bias out, yeah. right? It's, it's, I wouldn't call, it's not necessarily garbage in the sense that there's some information contained in that data, but it's not information just about where crimes are or who's committing crimes. It's information about some complex interaction between where crimes are and who's committing crimes and who the police are interested in investigating and how the police interact with those communities and how those, you know, those crimes are recorded by the police. So let's discuss your Oakland experiment. You put PredPol's algorithm to the test in a synthetic population of Oakland for drug use. And if you could just... uh, Please elaborate on how you conducted the experiment and the conclusion that you reached from it. So we used a synthetic population, which is not a very well-known term, but so what it is is something that you make from very high-resolution census data by combining um, various sources of information. So you take the high-resolution census data to make a single representation of every person in Oakland who is roughly demographically accurate in the sense that if you were to aggregate up to the smallest level of resolution in the census, the uh, demographics of your individuals that you've created in each 
each bin would match up with what the census says. And, and the groups are really relatively small that um, you have information on from the census. And so we didn't actually make this population, this aspect of the population, the demographic aspect of the population from scratch. There are other organizations that do this. Um, typically they do this to model things like disease spread. So you can have these individuals that are called agents, um, which are again, demographically representative of the city. And then based on the demographics and, and when we're talking about disease simulation, what's more in, what's more important will probably be things like age and, and sex, but um, you can then simulate how the disease would spread through um, a city under various um, interventions. In this case, we weren't interested in that aspect of it, obviously, but we did borrow a population um, that was made for these sorts of, those sorts of applications. But again, that, that what it was made for doesn't actually matter. I don't want to give the sense that this was you know, using something that it wasn't appropriate for. When they do that, it's really just the demographics that are important, and that's also what we were interested in. And actually, I spent about two years after I finished my PhD working on building these things myself um, at Virginia Tech. So I'm pretty um, – I know, I know that the nuts and bolts of this pretty deeply, so I'm not going to try not to go into those too much because I typically get distracted by those sorts of things, and that's really not the point here. But so what you have when you get one of these synthetic populations, whether you make it yourself or whether you, you know, use one that's pre-made for some other purpose, is you have an individual level representation of every person in a city, let's say Oakland here, um, and their demographic characteristics. So you'll have something like geo-coordinates of um, their estimated geo-coordinates of their house and, you know, race, age, sex, number of people in their house, income, number of children, et cetera, things like that. And so what we did is we combined this information with a survey, um, the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, um, that asks questions about who's using drugs. The idea was we wanted to get a different perspective on where drug use is taking place in the city. So we took this survey and sort of overlaid it on top of our synthetic population. So using the demographics of Oakland that were contained in the synthetic population, we estimated Based on this survey, we combined those two sources of information to estimate where we thought people were probably using illegal drugs in Oakland, just so we could have a point of comparison. We've been talking about how we don't really think the police data is a paints a super accurate portrait of where all the crimes are. We thought, well, this will give us a difference. This will give us a different perspective on where we think drug use is taking place, where we think um, drug crimes are taking place. So we made this map, and we, when what we essentially found was that probably drug use is taking place everywhere in Oakland. Um, and, you know, I've run that conclusion by people who actually live in the area, and they're like, yeah, drug use is probably taking place everywhere in Oakland. So we're like, all right, we're pretty confident in that. So that was our first estimate. That's sort of piece number one, and we can, we can lay that aside for a second. But just remember that, you know, based on estimates from non-police data, from, you know, the U.S. Census and from um, public health surveys, we think drug use is taking place pretty much everywhere in Oakland. The second step was then to look at how that compares to where there are the police records have information on drug crimes in Oakland. And what we found was that the police records really mostly had records on drug crimes in Oakland in two, two neighborhoods, roughly we'll call them neighborhoods. So one was West Oakland, which is a um, majority African-American area. And I wish I could show you the maps if this were the podcast. I could, it's a lot more convincing when I show you the maps. But it's an area... Um, yeah, that's heavily African-American, and another area down along International Boulevard slash Fruitvale-ish that, um, when we looked at the demographics, appeared to be mostly Hispanic. So those are the two areas where the police records um, contain a lot of 
you know, instances of drug crimes. Again, comparing to our other estimate where we think really drug crimes are probably taking place everywhere. All right, so the question was, what if we take this algorithm that was published by the um, makers of PredPol, and what if we apply it to these drug crimes or the, the police records and see where it says the you know, future drug crimes will be or the future, right, where, where drug crime is taking place in Oakland. And what we found is that, and this should be obvious, I hope, based on our descriptions of how machine learning works, this is just a machine learning model. So what it learned was the pattern in the data that we gave it, even though, again, the only data that it has was the times and locations of the drug crimes. But what it learned was that the places with the highest level of drug use or drug crime taking place was in West Oakland and along International Boulevard. So essentially, it just reproduced the patterns that were existent in the police data before to a T. And that's all that happened. And that's what we expected to happen, right? Because that's how these things work. Um, and so, you know, we concluded that this isn't going to solve the problem of getting more fair or equitable or, you know, well-distributed policing. It's essentially going to concentrate the policing in the locations where, um, where the police already know about the crime. And so, but one thing I want to add to this point, and I think this is a really important point to take away from this, is we're not just talking about drug crimes. We were looking at drug crimes in this case because there are other sources of data, in particular the public health surveys, on where drug use takes its place that's completely separate from the criminal justice system. So there's no, they're not influencing each other. They're completely, you know, independent look at this problem. Um, but the point we were trying to make was really a more abstract or more general point, sort of about the garbage in, garbage out, bias in, bias out point. But the, the point is that if you have police records that are not completely representative of where the crimes are taking place, predictive policing models are going to reproduce those those biases or those patterns, the inaccuracies in the patterns that exist in the police records, and concentrate the police effort in the locations where the police know about crimes, which, again, in general, probably might not be the same places where there actually are the most crimes. So I just don't want to get bogged down by the idea that our conclusions only apply to drug crimes. It's really a more abstract point about how biased data um, interacts with machine learning to um, concentrate the police effort in the areas that... Um, where, where the data has a lot of, where, where, you, where the police have a lot of data on crimes, but that might not necessarily be the same locations where there truly are a lot of crimes. And are we only looking at selection bias, or is the selection bias going to perpetuate a confirmation bias as well? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, that's a great question because I love this. I think in the paper we wrote, William came up with this great line that selection bias meets confirmation bias. And I think that's exactly why some of these models are so appealing to police departments. And if you think about it, right, you take your data that's a product of, you know, where you've thought activities taken place in the past and where people have told you that crime activity has taken place in the past. So it's sort of what you already know. You plug it through a machine learning model and it basically tells you those same patterns. And so it confirms that you were right in the past, right? So say you say a, the reason you know that there are a lot of crimes in neighborhood A is because you've patrolled there a lot. So now you take this model this, you know, somewhat expensive piece of software, and it tells you, yeah, neighborhood A, that's the place you need to go. That's got to feel good, right? That's confirming that you've been right all along. And so I think that's, that, that, yeah, a, a source of enthusiasm for, for, these, for these types of uh, products to some extent. Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think Christian's right. I, I do think in a lot of cases, the tools that are being used are, are, are you know, kind of accepted in part because they confirm departments' intuitions about where they believe crime is. And 
And I think that it, that can lead to kind of, you know, uh, some kind of uh, weird confirmation bias. And I think it also makes police departments less likely to critique or criticize, uh, you know, the models, uh, you know, that are underlying what they're getting, right? They say, well, this can, you know, this confirms what we know, right? And even if there might be bias going on, we know that crime's in these locations, right? And, you know, as I often, you know, as, you know, even just interacting with different police departments, I think, you know, there is a greater push to be more data-driven in their operations. But I think the problem is, is, you know, when you do think, when you do raise this about, you know, the problems with data, I think it's hard because they say, well, this confirms what we know. So let's not let, you know, like, I don't see the problem here right, is that we're able to get arrests and we're able to, to do the things we need to do. But I think for most researchers, we think of things like counterfactuals, right? We're saying, yes, you might actually, you know, might be arresting people in this location, but, right, the, what is the counterfactual, right, versus what, you, what you're actually doing? And that's what, those types of things are, are harder conversations to accept and do when, and when you're trying to do applied work. And the, the problem is and the danger is, is that this is not an abstract conversation. This is actually, you know, public resources being allocated by these tools. And these are real communities that are being impacted by the decision making. Right. And if, if these data sets are really just reproducing what the police already know, they're paying a bunch of money or actually rather they're getting uh, grants. So there's unfortunately not much public debate because they don't have to go to a city council and uh, get consent because yeah. they're getting these grants. But <clears throat> they, they, what are they buying? Just legitimacy, right? Because if these predictive policing systems are clothed in this neutrality of mathematics, which gives it legitimacy, but all they're doing is perpetuating discrimination, we might have a real problem on our hands. And I'd like to make another hypothesis. I want to talk about the NYPD stop and frisk policy. So in 2013, uh, the Southern District of New York in Floyd versus the city of New York rendered the stop and frisk policy unconstitutional as it was applied because it was based on a practice of racial profiling which had pervaded the uh, stop and frisk program and therefore violated the 4th and 14th Amendments. Now, the NYPD is in its second year of using, a, it's piloting a predictive policing tool, Hunch Labs. So my concern is, let's if we go back and take the case that there wasn't, you know, so-called racial profiling, that really they were just di directed by an algorithm which had seemingly neutral data, but in reality that data can be a proxy for discriminatory or illegal data. For instance, geography is a proxy for race. Is the court then going to say, well, there was no racial profiling, it was just a standard algorithm, and do these systems therefore make our 4th and 14th Amendment rights more vulnerable? Well, I'm not a legal expert, so I guess I, I can't make a, I can't render a legal opinion, but I, I would certainly say, I think from a policy perspective, I, I think what I've read so far from legal scholars that, you know, even, even before you get to questions of, of kind of, of equal protection, you know, there is this argument about, you know, the ability for the police department to render an area or a person, right, a suspect in a crime before they have to actually have any evidence to suggest that they are. Uh, you know, the, the thing about predictive policing is predictive. 
fundamentally, even with tools like, you know, that, you know, I, Stop and Fish did not use any predictive algorithms. And, and from, the, from the, the back research I've done on Hunt's lab, uh, their tools are very, are similar to, to PredPoles in which they're using place-based, uh, you know, police report or police incident data. So from that perspective, you know, there is this question of if Hunch Labs or PredPol or even newer vendors identify an area, right, and the police go there, right, is that enough for the police to then search individuals under the guise of saying that this is, you know, the algorithm identified it? And a lot of legal scholars say this is an open question in that, you know, that there, there actually might be grounds that this is a constitutional violation, right, because we, you know, that they have no other evidence other than just the computer algorithm and previous behavior. But as, you know, as a society, I think we've tended, tended to view, right, if someone is convicted, even is convicted of a crime, and we're far away from that, that even after they've been released from prison, right, that they are not necessarily supposed to be treated as if they are going to commit another crime, right? We tried to say you served your time, now you're able to re-enter society, right, and you move forward from there. But predictive algorithms go even further in the sense that before you even committed a crime, because in the case of place-based algorithms, there is, there is no underlying person involved. They're saying this location, this neighborhood, is a high-crime neighborhood. And therefore, are in terms of practical interpretation, which is, I think, an important discussion for the police departments, if they see this, they're not seeing, I think, as, as Christian has pointed out, right, they're not saying that, well, based on historical patterns, this is going to have a slightly elevated risk of having more property crimes or more violent crimes relative to other neighborhoods, right? That they're saying that this is a bad neighborhood, right? We need to allocate more police in this location. That says that the persons in this neighborhood, right, are suspect. And I think that's a different conversation. I think that's an unprecedented conversation in terms of what, what you're supposed to be generating from a statistical analysis. And I think that is the concern. I think that is where I think a lot of legal scholars are kind of saying maybe that this is a potential violation of constitutional rights. And I don't think any court has taken this on yet. So, that, so I don't think there's clarification, but I do think that there isn't a policy question there as to whether or not, you know, a algorithm can kind of substitute, you know, as, as actual physical evidence for someone or a person or a group of people to be a, to be, you know, suspects in a potential crime. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't been tested, but I believe it will be soon. They have to dig into the data to really to really see the prejudices within it and therefore render it unconstitutional. And hopefully they will, but unfortunately it has not been tested yet. I think another related issue, and I'll just jump in very quickly, um, that we see a lot in, you know, other areas where machine learning is being used in criminal justice are these risk assessment models where they make predictions about whether someone's going to be a criminal in the future, right, or they're going to be rearrested, essentially. Um, is going back to what I like to talk about a lot, how these, you know, the models are learning patterns in the data you give it. So when you do this, you're using past data. In a lot of cases, that data, you know, you're not the person you're, say, making a prediction about or the neighborhood or the individual who's there when you're, you know, going to this neighborhood because the prediction's been made about it. Their information probably isn't in that past data, right? So you're making predictions about a new person on the basis of data from other people from the past. And I think that's another area that uh, I think, you know, the law needs to or is, in fact, thinking of carefully about is that 
Is that right? Can we judge or make predictions about someone on the basis of the behaviors of other people from the past? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think people just would generally have a viscerally negative reaction to the concept of predictive policing, which, you know, is reminiscent of Philip K. Dick's pre-cog directed pre-crime unit, short story in the 50s, and then later uh, the film Minority Report, because the data, the, the forecasting is essentially deterministic, and it doesn't even take into account free will, let alone the concept of uh, criminal association. And another issue concerning free will is the free will of the police in applying the algorithm in their policing strategies. Even assuming that the algorithm is not reproducing biased data and providing accurate predictions, the police presumably will still have discretion in how they interpret the data and their prejudices, whether subconscious or not, may affect how they interpret and apply the data provided to them. Me and Christian talk a lot about this subject, and I do think one of the biggest questions is, you know, how do how does discretion work, right? How does implementation of policies work, right? So I think a lot of the discussion about, you know, predictive policing tools focuses rightly on the measures and the data. I think a whole separate conversation is, is, the, is the next step. Well, regardless of our issues with the data, right, and even if we identify that, how are those tools implemented? And I think we kind of get at this a little bit at the, about regarding a feedback mechanism, but I think just even broader in terms of, of implementing it, you, when, you say, when you say yes, you say certain neighborhoods or certain areas are, are identified, yes, certain you know, actors, you know, whether it's police officers or you know, the criminal justice system or judges involved with making rulings, or I think even now as I've seen as an emerging issue, um, immigration policy, right? Um, do, you know, how do ICE and you know, TSA and other, and other agencies that are tasked with trying to you know, do uh, you know, extreme vetting, uh, how do they use technology and data to identify threats and risk, right? And, and basically, you could have data that maybe, you know, says, hey, this person is not a risk, but if their intuition says, you know, this person, uh, you know, this person seems to me as someone who's a bit of a risk, right, do they just ignore the data and go, right? You can't, you, policy has very little control over free will. At the end of the day, when you're passing mandates, onto any institution, right, that the institution ultimately cannot, you know, and as a social scientist in the work that I do, right, we refer to these individuals as street-level bureaucrats, right, where, you know, regardless of the institutional ruling, right, the, the, the individuals who are actually day-to-day implementing this work have tons of discretion and free will to determine who they can target and who they won't, right, and data can have the very dangerous impact of actually giving credence to the discriminatory practices that they do implement, right? Whether that, you know, if someone of Latino descent is at the border and comes in and says, I'm a refugee, right? And, you know, the, the individual person who's working on the border says, I don't think this is a very valid refugee claim. I'm just going to detain them, right? And, and send them back, right? Like we could see, right, instances where even with data and you combine it with the discretion that officers have, can lead to bad results. And that's another part of it that I think is maybe outside the scope of our paper, but in terms of setting policy, how do you how do you address that? Because you're essentially providing these tools to institutions that are not necessarily completely data-driven, right? These, these institutions are just now kind of implementing tools to actually use data. And if you give them, you provide them data that, that says with some certainty, 
that this group or this person or these entities are at, at, at you know at risk of you know at, at causing harm to other people or causing harm to themselves, right? That you need to intervene. That's a different dynamic. And as we talked about before, right? Even you know, and it's kind of funny because sometimes we think about this uh, maybe you know too little, but even with a forecasting model, right? You're, you're forecasting, and let's say it's a 50% chance. To someone, that sounds like a pretty high percentage, but the people who work in statistics, we know that's almost, that's random, right? That's a coin flip. You don't, you, you, I mean, even perceptions of percentages matter a great deal when you're talking about, uh, you know, what, what we define as risk or what we define as, you know, as a potential danger to. So I think even in that concept, right? You know, there's a lot of issues that we that are outside of just the mechanics that we do need to think about when we involve the human beings in implementing any kind of you know result of a, of an analysis or forecasting tool. Right, and I think that's the problem because when we're looking at predictive policing models and people in the institutions have to actually apply them, as you said, they have that discretion. Then we have to look at the context of the predictive policing application in what has unfortunately been an historic and continuing context of systemic racism and police militarization. So if the results of using these algorithms will only reproduce and fortify already existing police practices and their discriminatory impact on communities of color at a time when arguably they're acting as an occupying force in these communities, are we going to be looking at a feedback loop where we're going to see harassment of these communities, which in turn will increase resistance to police activity in these communities, which in turn will only increase police presence and aggression in these communities. Well, you know, I, I, I think it, you know, some of these things, I, I think there is a, a, a feedback mechanism that does happen between, you know, data collection and data interpretation and analysis. And in part, I think, as, as Christian has pointed out earlier, in, in virtually all the cases that we're aware of, the baseline data set, the data that actually provides the analytical leverage for forecasting models related to policing is actual police community interaction, right? So there is no independent data that tracks these, tracks what we call quote-unquote crime, right, that is independent of police activity. So, like you said, if you, if you have a historic pattern of discrimination of certain groups or certain neighborhoods, right, and you feed that into a model and it says, well, with increased certainty, you're going to likely have reported crimes in this area because of your historic bias. Yes, of course, because as police go there, they're going to fill out more uh, elevated level of, of police reports. That gets fed back into the model and it continues to confirm Right, what has already been there historically, and so you know it's so it's and I think the, you know just to move the conversation, I think in a lot of ways that feedback mechanism is underappreciated. I think because we have a failure to define what crime is. Right, I think in, these institutions are kind of you know are very they're not very transparent in what information they share. And what they do share, like, you know, like, you know, I think even even the fact that we're having a conversation that criminal records are considered crime is a huge jump to me versus what historically was considered crime, which was like, you know, you know, drug arrests and, you know, homicides. 
right? Like we, you know, even now we're now even getting to the nuance of distinguishing between call for service data and crime report data. But I think, as you said, the, the, what is the commonality between all these is the institutions themselves and the history and the legacy of these institutions, right? If you, if you have a historic pattern of, of, you know, of targeting certain neighborhoods, whether that's individual officers, it may not be the entire institution, it might just be individuals in an institution, right? We can't keep out that data because oftentimes police departments don't provide who's reporting the data. Right, I don't think, to my knowledge, I don't think there is a police data, a police report data set that breaks down crimes by the officer who reports them. So we have no idea as to whether or not an individual right reports a crime and, and tends to have you know a particular bias towards certain groups. Right, we don't know if it's a department or a precinct. We just don't know, right, because of lack of transparency. But what we do know is that yes. If, if you do allow this feedback mechanism to continue, you do just have an escalation of targeting of these neighborhoods and groups, right, by police departments. And, and I would think that police departments would take this very seriously because, as we've seen over the past few years, right, the, the Justice Department has been increasingly citing, you know, whether it's, you know, Chicago, Baltimore, uh, you know, Ferguson, Right with you know with the, you know with you know fines and penalties for for actually having discriminatory police practices. Right now we know as of today uh, that you know uh, you know Attorney General Jeff Sessions is you know reviewing these and will likely roll some of these back. But we know that for the record that many of these cities have had to go on record as acknowledging that they've had continual historical bias. So I think. Even just saying that, some people may say it's controversial, but we know that this is the case in many police departments around the country. So even for Chicago, that let's say has you know purchased a whole new suite of predictive policing tools, right? If if they don't acknowledge the historical bias that's in their data set that has been that has been documented by the Department of Justice in their report that was released last year, how in the world do we how can we say that this data is actively objective? And that the analysis that we get out of it is accurate, right? And that's a hard thing to do. And, and the net result is going to be a continued escalation of interactions between targeted neighborhoods. And that's, and that's, and that's a sad and, and unfortunate use of data because I think there are much more uh, meaningful and impactful ways of using data to actually make you know, improvements into a community. And, 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 I think, and I think I would like to separate the fact that data does not have to lead to discriminatory practices, right? It's the historical legacy of the institutions combined with, right, the certainty that people give to an analysis that leads to these practices. It doesn't have to be. All right, and I do want to get to that point. But, uh, but before I do, I think the central problem here is police accountability. We don't have transparency of what the algorithms are. They're black blocks of proprietary elements, so we don't really know what the algorithms are that are directing this. We do know that the data that's fed into it is biased, and yet it's under this cloak of legitimacy. As you said before, a 50-50 chance is essentially random, but a police officer not, not trained in statistics may think otherwise. We have already have a big issue with police accountability, that the killings of Michael Brown, Walter Scott, Tamir Rice, fatal shootings of unarmed men and a 12-year-old boy, just three of a tragically vast number have resulted in, an, in a lack of accountability 
and I worry that this is going to be exacerbated when police can defend their actions by deferring to a mathematical algorithm that is really the result of their own historical uh, bias data. For instance, if police were informed by the model that a certain location during a certain temporal period was a hotspot and they went there looking for crime, uh, won't this result in more aggressive behavior and, and lead to more unarmed shootings? Well, I, I think it might be a little hard to link the algorithms to individual police decision-making. I think, I think I, I, you know, though I'm still usually not in the role of defending uh, predictive policing models, I would say that I don't know if they have that level of influence to decide the, the, the fate of individual police actions. And I think, as we just talked about previously, I think we do have to separate, right, general guidance and, you know, decision-making by, let's say, you know, police commanders or, you know, or police chiefs from, you know, from the rank and file police officers, because they do have a, a great deal of latitude. I would say that, it, you know, we have seen, and I think there are other projects that use data that have, have demonstrated that you can actually reduce, you know, uh, you know, you know, you know, you know, kind of negative interactions between law enforcement and, you know, and persons of color by tracking, you know, things like documented instances of, you know, whether that's, you know, uh, aggressive police behavior by an officer, right, or whether they, you know, you know, discharge their firearm unnecessarily, right, or just other, you know, things. But oftentimes, as you pointed out, that data is not available or made available to the public, right? And even when it is available, it's made available, it's often poorly kept and not well documented. So it's even hard for us to build on these tools and they're not uniform, right? So in some respects, data could be a useful situation, but it depends on what data we actually have, right? I think in some respects, the police departments don't necessarily put the same level of emphasis on trying to use the data they have on police behavior to hold police officers accountable for things like, you know, uh, shooting or killing unarmed individuals. But the predictive policing tools that we look at, it, it, it would, it, it's a little hard to make that link to individual action. But I would say that I think the part that may be, that might be provide some credence is just creating the atmosphere that some neighborhoods are more dangerous than others, right? That if I'm a police officer sent to an area that has an elevated risk of having, you know, let's say violent crime, right? Is that officer more likely to come in, right, ready to discharge his firearm? versus, let's say, him going and then, you know, just, you know, having conversations, walking the beat, and talking to people in the neighborhood, right? There, I think from that aspect of it, predictive policing tools, you know, should and do have some mechanisms to provide some accountability in the sense that if you're saying that a neighborhood is of elevated risk, how do you communicate that to police departments? But how do police departments view that information? Because if you're just telling them, hey, there's going to be a lot of violent crime in this area, you could create the conditions where you do have police officers shooting unarmed suspects because you've given the impression that this is a dangerous neighborhood and that this is a situation where you need to be able and be prepared to use lethal force because of what the, the, what the forecast generated for, for this neighborhood. 
So I do think I, I like to separate, but also identify where I could see some situations where tools can create that atmosphere. I think it's going to be important for police departments as they, you know, as they go forward with these things, because at this point, I don't, I think this is sort of a moving train. I wish it weren't, but I think, you know, it's going to be hard to stop the moment, the forward momentum to be adopting these sorts of tools. So if they are, you know, as ill-advised as it might be, I really do think there need to be a lot more studies on the effect of priming officers by saying, hey, this is, you know, this is an area where we're predicting, um, we're predicting elevated risk of crime. And we really need to better understand two things. One, how does that affect officers' um, behavior when they go into, into those situations, even short of lethal force, right? Even if it's just their, you know, lower level interactions with people on the street. Yeah. And also, how can you communicate what the model is saying in such a way that you don't create um, dangerous situations? You just said that it's a moving train, and I think you're right. In a report published in August 2016 by Upton, it found that 20% of the 50 largest police departments in the United States have used predictive technologies, that 36% are actively exploring options, and that for the ones that actively use these systems, for instance, like Los Angeles, there's no publicly available policy by which police have agreed to use these systems. And possibly they might not have crafted any policy on how to use, on how to use these systems. And, and that's really the problem because, as we've said, the police officers are not trained in how to use data systems. And we really do need these policies. Now, what would, in your opinion, be best practices for implementation of high data into police work, assuming that we could get the good data? I think I couldn't say definitively, because I think every department uses these tools a little differently. But I think, I think uh, both Christian and I wrote an op-ed for USA Today about two or three months ago. And where we kind of outlined some, some, I think, some broad guidelines about what police departments should think about. One in which I think, you know, is that, you know, departments need to understand the limitations of data, right? And understand that, you know, like as we've talked about, you know, at length is that, you know, departments do have, you know, historical, you know, patterns of behavior that may have negative or disparate impacts on communities, right? And then they need to understand that that is the baseline for which they're using any data that they collect. And, and that, Going forward, right, they need to think about that as they are interpreting the analysis that they receive. And I think the second thing is that departments do need to seriously consider providing statistical training, not just for the analysts that are doing the work of, of actually, you know, kind of generating or working with vendors to generate forecasts, but for rank and file officers, right? Because in a lot of cases, you know, for example, I think we mentioned Hunch Labs, their tool is actually sent directly to uh, the laptops of officers in the field. So in a lot of cases, officers have this, have this tool that they're looking at, and they're not necessarily trained in statistics, right? So, they, I mean, you can use different user interfaces to perhaps mitigate the, the level of information that you need to actually have to actually interpret these things, but you still need some basic understanding of how statistics work in order to actually understand a forecast and how to use a tool effectively, right? And to make, to understand, wait, is this just, a, you know, an aberration in the data or is this actually a concrete trend, right? And I think that, I think that, I think that is, I think, you know, a, a good step. And I think one thing I would love to see is, 
I think departments seriously need to consider public review, where they bring in community, uh, community groups and you know, experts who do research in this field to go through and review their systems and processes to ensure that they are not having a negative impact on communities, right? And I think, like, in terms of, a, a, you know, in terms of that, I think that would provide some accountability for, for police departments for using these tools. Because I think, as you point out, there is no policy. And people, and even if mistakes are made or, you know, and in some cases, these tools are not even used altogether, right? That's something that departments, that the public needs to know. Because if they're not using these tools and then when something happens, they say, well, the forecasting model, you know, told us that these tools are what, when we can say, well, we can go back and say, well, wait a second, the report that was filed then showed that most precincts and departments don't use these tools. So this is not just a judgment that was rendered from the model. This was the product of individuals making these decisions, right? And holding those individuals accountable for what's going on. So I, I think I think those I think are kind of you know broad kind of like you know kind of tent poles by which we I think we can you know begin to design policies around using predictive tools in law enforcement or criminal justice. And on a purely technical point here, um, if I think police officers should be aware that if they want to avoid the sort of feedback loops that we were talking about, right, where you go to some place because you have historical data that indicates that's where you've observed crimes in the past, and then when you go there, you find more crimes, you plug that back into your algorithm, which then tells you to go back to that location because you've just plugged more crimes in, right? So from a, a purely technical point, if they want to avoid that sort of feedback loop, I think there would need to be some awareness around how that feedback loop could work and um, instructions to not, you know, to, to be there as sort of, a preventative force not to go documenting or ticketing every small thing that they find or trying to uncover a lot more than they would have found anywhere or else that's exactly what will happen. The additional crimes that they um, document simply by, by being there, even if they're minor, could then feed back into the algorithm and cause this sort of escalation where it... Uh, you create the feedback loop where you're increasingly predicting more and more crimes in the same location. Right. Some might say we live under a tyranny of algorithms because they're really pervasive in our society at the moment. And I think one of the problems that, that I've read is that a lot of the data uses proxies and stand-ins, not the actual data that they're concerned about. Now, what is this problem of correlating from stand-ins and proxies? And, and how can police be trained not to correlate, say, for instance, data from order theft uh, which I suppose a lot of people report because in order to get insurance, you need to report that your car's stolen. Uh, but then, say, rape is underreported, and the two crimes are completely different. And yet, you know, do, would we have police officers you know, correlating such data, for instance, and should they be instructed not to? And how should they be instructed to deduce um, when data is important in a particular area? Yeah, so usually when I think about uh, using data as proxies, it's not quite in that uh, context. And this is, uh, this is an open area of research, how to not do this to some extent. So normally what you, how I normally think about the problem is say you don't want to make, say race, say you know there is, you're observing crimes with uh, bias with respect to race. So some race is getting more, um, you know, is being observed at a higher rate than another, even for the same level of criminality. Let's just assume that's true. So one, so a lot of vendors will say, well, we don't include race in our model, right? So that's not one of the risk factors that's in our model to make predictions. And so, um, you know, it's a race, racially neutral 
prediction. And so usually when I think about proxies, what how that happens is say they use a variable that zip code. This is sort of the canonical example here, where zip code is a relatively small geographic area, um, which can be somewhat racially homogeneous. And so even if you exclude race from your model, but if you include something like zip code, then your, your predictions won't be materially different than if you just included race, because the zip code will act as a proxy for the race variable. So yeah, you, you can throw out the race variable, but you could still include something else that contains much of the same information as the race variable would have contained, and then, you know, sort of thereby getting the same predictions you would have anyway, but now with the claim that this is a race-neutral um, prediction because race isn't actually in the model, or, you know, a gender-neutral prediction if you threw out gender but included, I don't know, something else that would correlate heavily with gender. Um, and so that's usually the context in which I think about, um, and I think in which the discussion in these areas centers around proxy use of other variables, um, and yeah, that's an active area of research, how to remove that influence. So I don't think there's actually a solid, you know, universal consensus on how that should, how that should be done. But I think there is, there is an increasing awareness of the fact that this is a problem that just because you say throw out one type of data, that it doesn't have lingering effects on the predictions, um, the model's predictions via its correlation with other, with other types of variables that you do include. Now, we know that we need to do a lot more research, as you said before, uh, but, but how do we do this? How do we test the reliability of these algorithms when they're protected by trade secrets? I mean, I know that you did the uh, Oakland experiment and uh, that you used uh, PredPol algorithm, but this was a publicly available algorithm that they gave, right? It might not be the one that they actually use and have um, proprietary protection over. I believe that the vast research out there testing these algorithms, for instance, the study that Prepol did in Kenton, LA, have been done by the creators and proponents of these algorithms. So how can we move forward with, with this black box problem? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really great question. Um, you know, I do applaud Predpol for publishing something that at least hopefully approximates the algorithm they're, they're using. You're exactly right that the one that they published in um, JASA, Journal of American Statistical Association, um, I don't think that's actually what they're selling. Um, I would be surprised if it were because, you know, they are making money off the tool. So if someone could just code up what they published, that would take away a lot of their business. So I'm, I'm sure it's not the same thing. Hopefully it's a close enough approximation that we can get, you know, reasonable inferences on how it would behave, like at least similar to how the real thing's behaving. Um, but I, I don't really have a concrete answer what we can do about this problem other than say, yeah, this is a, you know, this is a real problem that there isn't more transparency surrounding um, the technology that's being used, exactly how the algorithms are being used or what the algorithms even are. Um, there is some work, again, talking about research, just because that's sort of what I think about a lot. Um, there is some research on like exactly what you said, black boxing the models. So if you have access, you don't have access to the code to audit, you know, how it's actually working, but you have access to something like an API where you can take data and plug it through the algorithm and get an answer. So you don't get to see the code, but you get to see an input and an output, how you can use um, those sorts of things to see which variables are having the most influence on the prediction. Um, there was a beat blog post, and I wish I'd looked this up ahead of time because it's terrible of me not to give the correct shout out, but on a new Python library that sort of helps you to um, do this procedure where you can plug in some data, see what, if you change some inputs, 
how that changes the output. So, for example, if you change the racial composition of a city, how does that change the output of the predictions, things like that. Um, so, again, this is an active area of research for how to, how to, best, yeah, how to best do this, um, but it's certainly something that needs to be done because we definitely need more transparency in this area. I just wanted to kind of uh, dovetail onto to, uh, Christian's point here. And I think I, I would say that I, I think that it, you, there are big questions about how we define transparency and how we define evaluations. And I think, I think, I think, I think she's absolutely right in the sense that that I think it's still an open area as to, you know, how we, you know, measure and assess uh, black boxes. I think, I think Christian's point about, you know, using kind of, you know, APIs or other kind of, uh, you know, interfaces that allow people to interact with the underlying algorithm, right, without actually seeing the underlying code could provide some steps. Because I would say that even in the example that we used, that we did, um, that, that could have been essentially done, right, the same way. I would say that I think in terms of formal policy, I do think that, you know, there's a, you know, maybe we have levels of transparency versus what the general public knows versus what police departments and other institutions who are about to acquire this software actually, actually get access to. And I don't think, let's say, people in police departments don't have someone who's trained in, in oftentimes to assess, right, you know, algorithms. But I think what we should do as a policy is we should define what does it mean for an algorithm to be successful, right? And I think a lot of times we just jump to a, to a kind of the, you know, is the model leading to, you know, you know uh, desperate impact, which is important. But also, I think there's still a fundamental question of whether or not, you know, police departments can actually reduce crime or reduce public complaints or improve service times using these tools. There is no published research on any of these things that are done in a way in which we would evaluate any other policy like doing a randomized control trial. I think Purple has their study, but that's, that's their study that was done kind of with the LAPD. And there has been no, there's no one to actually uh, kind of, you know, uh, replicate that experiment to see if those effects are, 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 actually, are actually legitimate. So I think uh, from a start, we should define what is predictive policing designed to do? Right. And, and what, do, what does the community view as kind of, you know, metrics of performance? And then from there, right, we can do randomized control to look at outcomes. Because if we see, for example, if we see an algorithm being used in some police districts and not in others, but we see, let's say, because we know, I think, I think if anyone takes away from this conversation, that we are necessarily, we're kind of skeptical of using police reports. Uh, police reported incidences of crime as measures of criminal behavior. But let's say we look at, let's say, response times. Like, what if we look at, you know, police con uh, police misconduct reports or, or police complaints as metrics of performance? Right? How do we evaluate the differences between policing that use predictive policing and those that don't? Right? That in and of itself will provide some understanding of what the impact of these tools are. And I think that in and of itself could provide some way of getting towards it, because I do think, yes, you can assess the algorithm directly by looking at, you know, uh, simulations of what you could get. But I do think just like any other public policy, we typically tend to have some sort of program evaluation to assess their efficacy on some sort of defined goal, whether that's, you know, if we're looking at the impact of some program on reducing homelessness, 
some program on reducing, you know, opioid addiction, right? We, I think that needs to be the next step. In order to assess algorithms, yes, there is like this, the simulated, let's say, outcomes that could happen, but also just the practical outcomes because it includes one important component. It includes not just the underlying algorithm, but also the human-computer interaction. When you actually implement something, how does it actually have an impact on real-life decision-making? Because ultimately, that's what we care about, right? That's what we think is, that's what we, as I think as people who are involved with this as researchers or practitioners or department or institutions, we care about what are the outcomes on real, on real human beings. Right. And I think that's what I think we need to also take in consideration, in addition to just assessing the, the quantitative accuracy, because, you know, in, you know, some some algorithms are automated in the sense that the decision is automatic. They're the only person involved. But when you move in towards things like predictive policing, and I think a lot of the forecasting tools, there is a there is an algorithm component, but there's also a human in the loop. Right. That the decision making is also partly human. And so we do have to factor in how those, those decisions are made. And I think a great example is the study that was done, um, I think it was in the Journal of Experimental Criminal Justice, that looked at the heat list or the person-based predictive policing algorithm that was done by the city of Chicago. And one of the things they found in the qualitative uh, assessment is that most police districts that had access to this tool didn't actually use it, right? They didn't even bother to consult it. They didn't use it as an evaluation tool in their, in their weekly meetings, right? They didn't even think about it. It wasn't used. So from that perspective, right, that helps us understand, okay, if, you, know, is there, you know, is there anything that's being involved with, with this tool in terms of actually reducing, let's say, homicide? Well, if the departments are using it, we have no idea. The one thing that they did say happened was that when they were provided a list of 500 individuals, that they said were defined as likely to commit a violent crime, a lot of these people got arrested. <laughs> that, was the, that was the one net effect, was that it led to a lot of people being arrested. Not necessarily a reduction in homicides, but it did lead to a lot of people getting arrested for violent crimes, right? Well, it, so this was just a list of people they could routinely go to if anything happened in a given neighborhood and say, okay, well, this person's a high risk, let's arrest this person, right? Because they might be a suspect. And so I think from that perspective, right, that defining metrics and defining things that we define as success or not and finding ways to systematically test them, that's a really good start because I think it combines a lot of the issues that we have raised in this conversation. Mm. Now, is it ever possible to have an accurate policing model if we put in good data? We might always have the problem of free will. We can't just ossify people into bare statistics. Uh, but then the other problem is, is can we... Can we have a data set without any bias or is there always an inherent bias there? Or can we utilize machine learning to be sensitive to historic and pervasive prejudices and weed them out of its analysis? Is that possible? Well, kind of. This is sort of a wishy-washy answer, but it, <laughs> it would be possible to do some sort of reweighting or something of the police data if you had some ground truth, you know, gold standard data set on, say, you know, where all the crime really was, you know, you had some, you had a full enumeration of all of the crimes that were committed in some time period from that you could, you might be able to estimate, you know, which crimes are underreported versus overreported, et cetera, and then go forward to make corrections. Now, the problem with that is we don't actually have a data set that says all of the crimes that were committed, you know, say in some time period, 
And honestly, I don't want to have that. I think the sort of, you know, surveillance that would be necessary to even to even acquire such a data set is just so beyond the scope of anything that's desirable or realistic or, you know, a net positive to society. Um, yeah, I don't want that at all. So theoretically, sure, you could alter your your algorithm by providing some sort of, sort of weights, but in order to get those weights, you'd have to have information on, um, you know, what all the crimes were. So that's, so, I, so yes and no, right? Like theoretically, yes, practically, no, I don't really think there's a way to do that. Right. We don't want to live in the panopticon, although unfortunately maybe we already do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but okay. So, so is there a way to use the plethora of data out there? We've been talking about all the negative consequences of uh, using data, but uh, using inherently biased data, but we have this data that's publicly available as well from a plethora of sources. Now, is there a way to utilize this data that respects free will and privacy and works for the community to protect people from violence? From my perspective, I, I'm, I, you know, despite my position in our paper, I'm a data optimist. I think that data can be used to mobilize people and to help people uh, make, you know, make positive differences in their lives. And I think in this particular case, I don't think the question is about data as so much as it is about, you know, how you interpret it, how, what are we defining as our key outcomes, and what interventions do we use to achieve them? And i give you a great example. Uh, in the city of Toronto, they're now rolling out this new system. It's called uh, the Hub and Core system. And essentially... It uses a, it, its core is a, is a predictive policing uh, algorithm, I think, believe really similar to what we see in the United States. But instead of using it for enforcement mechanisms, they have partnered with other government institutions, so social welfare services and, and you know, public health services, to then decide, okay, is the outcome that we need to focus on, okay, we see this individual that's being arrested multiple times for things. Do we need to send him to go get housing? Do, does he need mental health treatment so that he can you know, be set up with someone that he can talk to to help him navigate to the social system, right? So in terms of the actual tool, right, it's just a tool for prediction, but in terms of how police departments utilize it, right, the goal is then to find a way to move people who are having a tough time who are maybe involved in a dangerous situation to provide them resources that they need. And I could see that involved, like, let's say domestic violence, right? So instead of like saying, okay, well, we have an instance where we've had multiple cases of domestic violence called to this house or to this neighborhood, right? Maybe we need to maybe allocate more resources and sending out social workers to talk to people to if there's a, if there's a situation inside the house, if there's kids involved, maybe to make sure that they know that they're aware that there are options that they can, they can maybe leave their situation and that there are options out there, right? There are ways in which you could use data for positive purposes. I think, as we've talked about before, is that the sticking point is that for a lot of police departments, their only tool is enforcement. Their only tool is to detain and arrest people. And, and that, that is into a lot of negative outcomes. Because I think as we've seen in books like The New Jim Crow and others, right, once you're in the criminal justice system, there is kind of a cascading effect, right? If you get arrested for a crime, 
right? And you're sent to, you're sent into the criminal justice system. You have that on your record as a felon. It's hard to get jobs, hard to get access to social services. So even some of the things that I talked about in the case of Toronto, right? If you were arrested for, let's say, a drug crime and you're, and you're released, you served your time, right? There are a whole suite of social services that you don't have access to because you're a felon, right? So like, because of the initial interaction being from law enforcement, now your options are so much more limited. And that in and of itself is an area where we can say, if we're designing a predictive systems that are more humane, that allow for social mobility, right? We've, we maybe don't want to use enforcement as the key tool, right? There are other tools that we have that can allow people to get the resources they need to perhaps maybe mitigate what we consider quote unquote crime, right? But we don't use them because our first the thing is, well, if, they, if we arrest them and we put them, in, you know, and we incarcerate them, therefore, right, we're reducing crime. That, that is the, and I think that goes to the fact that somewhere along the line, we have made a determination as to what our key metrics are and what our, what our, what our focus is going to be. And I think that is, I think, maybe the part we need to revisit. Not whether or not data is good or bad or whether or not predictive tools are good or bad, but what are they used for? Right, and that's a question that, in some respects, the people who design these tools can't answer. Right, They're, they design the tool for what they think police departments want. Right, and I think the question is: Is do police departments actually know what the community wants? So I imagine that many communities in Baltimore and Chicago, right, they don't necessarily want people being arrested. Right, they want their families safe. They want to be able to trust their institutions that they pay their tax dollars. To, to kind of go out and actually keep the community safe, right? And they want to stop violence, right? But, you know, and there's a lot of ways to stop violence in the community. And as we've seen in the case of Chicago, heavy-handed enforcement hasn't reduced the number of homicides in Chicago. In fact, what we know so far through 2017, the level of homicides in Chicago was at the same rate as it was, you know, two years prior. So this has nothing to do, so in, increased enforcement and incarceration has not actually stopped, right, the outcome. So the question is, well, what do we do now? And I think data can solve those tools, but it has to be in conjunction with what the outcomes are. Right. We have to look at what the community needs, and therefore we need to involve the community. We need more public meetings and for the police to go back to, to what they're meant to be. If you look at the etymological uh, origins of the word police, it's from the ancient Greek polis, the polity, the citizenry. They're not meant to be an occupying force. They're not meant to see Absolutely. the people as the enemy that they're meant to go out there and arrest. They're really meant to be there for them in service to them and protecting them. And, and I would say that, you know, I think a great quote was, you know, uh, in the aftermath of the shooting in Dallas, um, I think it was maybe eight months ago, you know, one of the things that the police chief in Dallas said is that, the thing that he struggles with the most is that a lot of, you know, from the, you know, local community and in the, in the local city council, police departments are asked to do so much more, right? In addition to just being, you know, just having this quote-unquote enforcement tool and mechanism, right? They're also now the front lines for, for, you know, a lot of cases of mental health, right? A lot of times someone says, say, my family member is acting strange or acting weird. Please dispatch someone to come help me with this, Right? They're oftentimes settling domestic violence, domestic, uh, you know, abuse situations, right? They're oftentimes addressing homelessness. And his response was that, you know, they're asking us to do a lot of social related, you know, tasks, and they don't give us the resources and tools to do it. And, and I, and I, so I, so I sympathize from that respect in that I understand that there's a lot of things that police officers are tasked to do, 
But the reality of it is, is that if the only tool you use is enforcement, that perpetuates like negative outcomes, right? It makes your job more difficult rather than saying, you know, maybe there are other tools that we can use. And I would say other police departments are using more tools. And I think there are anecdotal evidence across the country of police departments, I think, doing as you're saying is that being part of the public, being part of the community, whether that's in San Francisco with them mandating that they actually dispatch a mental health a tra- officer trained in dealing with mental health issues when they're going out in certain neighborhoods because the data that they have suggests that certain neighborhoods are just more likely to have instances where you're dealing with a mental health situation, whether that's you're dealing with someone who maybe is not responding to their family or, or fighting with their family and needs someone to de-escalate the situation, right, and, and make sure that person gets the resources they need, or whether that's in like things like Camden, where they're, they're using data to actually allow officers to like walk the streets and be able to use data to say, okay, maybe we don't need to use enforcement, maybe these other tools. Right? I, you see these things cropping up, but I think we, in some respect, I think part of it is that I think the data science community at large needs to say, okay, there are some things data can do, but there are some things that the public and the community need to be involved with. And we're not going to be imperialistic with our demands and say, all right, we have data on what crime is. Crime is going to be the number of arrests, and we're going to run an algorithm on it. That's, that's, that's perpetuating the same institutional bias that we've always seen. I think a better conversation is that you need to involve the community. What, does the, what issues are in a community at a given moment in time? Right? What tools can we use? And how do we define policies? And I think this gets to the point that we've talked about a lot during our conversation is that, you know, we, I think everyone sees this, but I think because we, we kind of have a bit of, you know, a bit of, I guess, confidence in what we're doing with mathematics that somehow we ignore that, especially when you're dealing with human beings, it's an imperfect science. And, you know, and I think as we've seen with the election most recently, even really good forecasting tools go wrong sometimes, <laughs> right? And sometimes, you know, so from that respect, right, you know, it, you know, it revolves, with, you know, anyone who works with data is always a little skeptical, but the skepticism doesn't have to be just in the measurement, but also the broader social context in which you're using these tools. And that's what data scientists need to remember, especially when we're dealing with public policy or anything involved with human beings, that there's a social component and that you are actively playing a role in it. If you, as an analyst, decide that crime is going to be defined as violent crimes like murders or homicides and property crimes, you are changing how a community views what crime is, right? Even if the community didn't, doesn't define it as crime themselves. So when you stop, when when some people in the community are saying crime is like my kids not you know being true and not showing up to school right or these kids on the corners right that are causing my problems they're not talking about homicide and you and they're saying the solution for a community might be can you make sure these kids get a proper education can you find jobs for these kids versus I'm going to arrest these kids and I'm going to put them and I'm going to put them behind bars right that you know those are different conversations but you don't see that in data. You just see numbers that are just, you know, that are populated by interaction. And so I think that's where the conversation needs to change, in my opinion. All right. I think that, and this conversation needs to take place long before the tools are in the hands of the police or, or even, you know, being deployed, whatever they are, in any real-world context. So I think in order to make tools that are successful along a variety of measures of success, those metrics have to be built into the tool. So if you're doing something where you're making yeah. a prediction – there's some explicit function you're using that you're optimizing, right? Yeah. And so 
right now, like William was saying, usually what you're optimizing is, you know, predicting the raw number of crimes or something like that. We need to be able to design our objective, design, this is sort of a technical term, but the objective function take in a variety of um, goals, you know, of objectives. I mean, I'm sort of overusing that word, but a variety of goals for the society that don't just include predicting the raw number of crimes when we're optimizing and designing the models, even from, you know, step one, that needs to be part of the conversation, not, you know, way after the fact, how can we then adjust this or how can we, you know, use this so we don't cause these problems that needs to take place up front. I agree. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for your insightful analysis of these issues. My pleasure. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.